This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. It's great to be with you today. My name is Curtis Cook. I'm a pastor of Hope Fellowship Church in Cambridge. And so uh, friends of uh, Chris James and, and uh, sister church of yours and just love Mill City Church. I've loved this church from its very beginning and just always thrilled and encouraged uh, to see what's happening here. And so it was a great uh, joy to be with you today. I commend you for coming to church on uh, New Year's Day. So uh, we don't believe you earn salvation, but if we could give you some merit points for coming to church today, I, I would do that. I can't, but, but I would. Um, but if you're tired from staying up late, last night, you feel the need to sleep during the sermon, that's fine, you're, you're in good company, so just don't lay down, that's all that I asked, it'd be a little hard on my ego if you lay down, so just sleep sitting up and everything will be great today. You know, carbon monoxide is, a, is an odorless gas that causes thousands of deaths each year. It's in fact the leading cause of poisoning death in the United States. So breathing in this carbon monoxide is dangerous because it's odorless and because it often goes undetected. So it can be present in your home or in your workplace, and no one realizes it's there until you're very sick, and unfortunately, sometimes until it's too late. So because of this danger, many homes now, businesses have carbon monoxide detectors that detect this and alert you to its presence. There's a spiritual danger, I think that's much like carbon monoxide, that is silent but is dangerous, and it's so dangerous because it's so hard for us to detect it in our own lives. It's profoundly difficult to see it in ourselves, so therefore it is so dangerous. And what is the spiritual danger? It is the danger of pride. C.S. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There's no fault of which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And what he writes of is pride. Friends, pride is tremendously dangerous to our souls, and yet easy to ignore hard to identify. It's not something we want to see in ourselves. And God's word graciously serves as an alarm for us to wake us up to the presence of pride. And that's this morning what we're going to look at as we begin this new year together, as we think through how might we live well in the year to come. A wise place to start would be not in wondering, is there pride in my heart? It is there. Not, not wondering, is there pride in your heart? It is there. The question is, where is it? And how do we fight it? What would it look like to diligently give ourselves in this year to fighting pride? So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 131. Psalm 131 in the Bible is provided for you. You can find it on page 519. It'll also be projected for you. It's a very short psalm. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible just so you can see the text in front of you as we walk through it this morning. Maybe you're new to reading the Bible. When you open it up, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in Psalm 131. The small numbers are the verse numbers. So I'll mention those as we walk through this brief psalm this morning. So Psalm 131, beginning in verse 1. Follow along as I read it aloud. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This morning we see in this text that true humility provides peace and is something to be desired and also something to be pursued. My prayer this morning is that this would be helpful to us in this new year, that we'd be a people who would give ourselves to to pursuing this peace. So, So first, what I want us to see in this psalm is that there are two ways in life, pride or humility. Two ways, pride or humility. We see this in verse one. Now in this psalm, David, King David is the psalmist here, and in this psalm, he begins by sharing his own experience as a means of encouraging God's people. So in essence, we get to overhear David's own thoughts. We get to hear him pray. It's almost like we're reading his own journal. If you're a journaler, this sort of like David has kept this journal, and now he's sharing it with us. He's sharing it with God's people. So these are the words of one who knows well this struggle with pride. David is not saying that he has never known pride, but he is saying that by the grace of God, he's found his way through pride to humility. And as we look at verse 1, we can see really both the positive and the negative here. David tells us several things that he's not doing, and we can see by what he is not doing what the prideful life looks like, and we see that he's embracing the path of humility. So we see three different angles that show us glimpses of both humility and pride. We see that pride is marked by a lifted up or a proud heart. So he says, my heart is not lifted up. So the prideful heart is the heart that is lifted up, the heart that is puffed up, the heart that is bent inward on itself. The prideful person is the self-centered person, is a self-absorbed person. We, we know what this heart looks like, at least in others, right? We, we can, you can, when I mention pride, you immediately think of people in your life who are proud people. Like, yeah, that's a lifted up heart, her, him. But we know what it looks like in others. But in humility, there's a heart that's appropriately directed and leveled. This person has an appropriate perspective on oneself and also on God. Instead of self-centeredness, this person is able to look outward to serve others, to bless others. This person is not thinking too highly of oneself, but it's also not thinking too lowly of oneself. So if you were honest today, just discerning where your own heart is today, how would you describe your heart? Or maybe more substantially, how would others describe the outlook of your life? Lift it up? prideful, or appropriately directed. Then we see also in pride, that in pride, it's marked by eyes that are raised too high, or eyes that are haughty. So he says, verse 1, my eyes are not raised too high. The prideful person looks over others. He looks down on others. The prideful person not only thinks too highly of himself, but also in pride he finds a way to look down on those around him. In pride we overvalue ourselves and we undervalue others. We tend to build ourselves up to inappropriate levels while at the same time tearing others down. 
I know in my own heart, I, I have found over the years an amazing ability to cultivate pride in the strangest of ways. Now, as a pastor, you might think, well, what is it that pastors struggle with in pride? Well, well lots of areas, the same areas that you struggle with. But one of the things that was, I, I think, is surprising in, in retrospect. So when we first started the church in 2003, there was a time when we had, you know, like 22 people. And you might say, well, how could you ever be prideful when you have 22 people? Well, I'm pretty creative. I found ways to be prideful with 22 people. So when you have 22 people, it, pride, I was able to say or think, well, you know, we're in a hard place in Cambridge. So only tough people can have 22 people there. But I didn't even stop there. I could also think of larger churches and think, well, well, the reason they have so many is because in some way they're perhaps compromising. And so because we're doing it right, that's why we have 22 people. Well, so then when the church grows and then you have 222 people, you think, well, you've sort of lost your ground for pride. Well, no, you just find a new ground for it. And so now with 222 people, what does pride lead us to do? It leads me to, to look down on a church that has 22 people. I says, well, if they really knew what they were doing, they would have 222 people. So, so a disturbing reality in my own heart has been, no matter where we are, I have found an ability to be self-centered, to be self-absorbed, to look down on others, no matter where the station of life is. And friend, I think if you're honest, you probably do the same thing. But in humility, there's an appropriately directed outlook. The humble person no longer has to find a way to look down on others. He can appropriately think well of others, speak well of others. He doesn't need to try to undercut their successes or attack their progress. Friend, a good indicator of our hearts is, can we speak well of others? Others in the workplace, maybe who are in some way, there, there's some competition here. If they succeed, can you celebrate their success? If someone else gets the promotion that you wanted, can you speak well of them? Or do you say, well, they, they did some things behind the scenes. That's the only way that they got that. Tim Keller says this. He says, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things to myself. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. It is not thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. It's a very important distinction. Gospel humility doesn't think that I think less of myself. I don't demean myself. I don't tear down myself. But as I grow in humility, I just don't have to think about myself all the time. I think about myself less. I wonder if you're like me and have the temptation to always connect what's happening in others' lives, first thinking, well, what does it mean for me? Your friend, your family member shares some news, but what you're first thinking is, well, well, so what does that mean for me? What would that mean for my life? What does that mean for my situation? In humility, our outlook towards others is transformed. And then we see that pride is also marked by an inaccurate view of oneself and of God. So the psalmist says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. Now, what does this mean? Is this saying that Christians shouldn't try to do significant things in the world? Is this saying that Christians should only aim for mediocrity? No. Is this saying that Christians shouldn't wrestle with 
and ask hard questions? Are, are we to be an unthinking people? No. Christians can appropriately engage in great endeavors in this life. We can set out to, to seek and to achieve significant goals. We can wrestle with challenging questions in this life and in this world. But this is saying that there are limits to what we can know. There are limits to human knowledge and understanding. No matter how much we think about it and, re and research it, there are some things that are knowable only to God and not to us. In this life, there will always be much that we cannot know. And I think in greater Boston, that's something that's hard for us to agree with. Because we take great pride in intelligence and education in pursuing these great questions. And so there's value to that. But I think we have a hard time saying there are some things in this life we just cannot answer. There are some things in this world that only God knows. Friends, there will be events that happen in our world, in our lives, challenges, suffering that we will face, that will raise questions that at times confuse us, that, that weigh us down. And in this life, we will not know a full explanation of them. Friends, it's fine and even godly to ask God questions. If you read the book of Psalms, it's filled with the psalmist in various seasons of life crying out to God, voicing concerns, questions, frustration with God. It's normal to wonder about what's going on, but it's very easy in pride for our questions to move to demands, where we begin to demand of God, to actually stand in judgment over God, to accuse God. Friends, humility recognizes that we are not God. So in humility, we have a right view of ourselves and a right view of God. We come to grips with no matter how much theology we know, no matter how much we understand about this world, there still will be much that we cannot know. And we won't be crushed by this. We won't be angered by this. But in humility, we will actually find a way to rest in this. Author John Goldingay says this, The difference between God and us is that God never thinks he is us. You'll catch on to that in a little while. It's kind of, you know, been a long night last night. The problem is we think we're God. We often think we're on par with God, so God needs to answer to me. We misunderstand who we are. So this is not a call away from the challenges of life, not, not a call away from diligent work, it's not a call to mediocrity, but it is a call away from thinking that I'm God. It's a call to a right perspective. So the Christian life is a life that, that can be given to, to right and godly ambition, to glorify God in all of life, to join in the spread of Jesus Christ in our cities and around the world. Friends, there are great life-shaping ambitions for those who know Christ. But they are not ambitions that lead to an inward turn, an inflated ego. Friends, we must see that there's great danger in pride. It's dangerous to our own souls. Friends, it's dangerous to our families. It's dangerous to churches. 
That leads us second. To second, what I'd like for us to see in the text is this, a pursuit of peace and humility. A pursuit of peace and humility. Look at verse 2. The psalmist says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So we see that the psalmist David has exerted effort in pursuing peace and humility. Because notice what he says. He says, I have calmed and quieted. So he gave energy, focus to this pursuit. Friends, we should not be naive that growth in peace and humility requires pursuit on our part. Humility will not just happen to you. You won't just wake up one day and say, my goodness, what a great thing. I'm humble. It doesn't happen to us. Instead, the opposite happens to us. Without a pursuit of humility, we will grow only in pride, never in humility. So if we're to grow in peace and humility, it will require an intentional focus. Now, this pursuit is absolutely dependent on the strength and the power of God within us. So we pursue it with the diligence, the grace that God gives to us. But but David is saying that he has not always had a calm and quiet soul. He says that he has stilled his soul. He has quieted his soul. Which means at one time, it was not still, it was not quiet, quiet. So David has struggled with pride. He has wrestled with self-centered living. And he knows the anxiety that flows from pride. He slowly learned the lesson of dependence on God. So this growth and humility is learned. It is cultivated. Friends, we're not just born either proud or humble. You might be born with blue eyes or brown eyes, but it's not. Some people are proud. Some people are humble. It is true, sometimes our environment plays a part in our outlook, but we can't just say, well, this is just the way I am. My family's always been a bunch of proud people. That's not just the way you are. We're not just born this way. It is something that is pursued. It is cultivated. We're pursuing a calmed and quieted soul, a humbled soul. And what is this calmed and quieted soul like? He tells us in verse 2, it's like a weaned child with its mother. So the image here is of a young child who has been weaned from his mother's milk. So he's no longer breastfeeding. So now when he's with his mother, he's no longer restless like he was before the weaning process. Before a child is weaned, and especially as they're trying to wean it, the child is never at peace when it's around its mom because it wants to eat every time he's with his mom. And so it's frustrating for all involved. The child is never at rest always stirring. But then finally, when the child is weaned, the child is now able to be still when he is with his mother. There's a drastic difference between a child going through the weaning process and one that has completed the weaning process. So David tells us this calmed, quieted soul is like a weaned child. The calmed, quieted soul is not restless, not always stirring, not always looking for what is next. It is able to be still. Now, in our pursuit of humility, we repent of and renounce the immaturity and self-centeredness that mark our lives. So when we think of the image of a weaned child, we see this child that is at rest, that is still, 
But the flip side is the child that is never at rest, that's always complaining. And friends, as we seek to fight pride and pursue humility and contentment, the truth is we are often like the unweaned child. It's normal for a little child to act like that. But unfortunately, in pride, it's normal for us to act that way as well. Now, now we're a little bit more advanced than a little baby is. So we're a little bit more discreet in the fits that we throw. But that's exactly what we do. We are restless. We are never satisfied. We're always looking for more, always frustrated with others and with God. Friends, if we're honest, often we are throwing fits. These tantrums mark our lives. And in pursuing humility, we identify this, we come to grips with this, and we repent of this. We renounce those patterns. We don't just say, well, this is just how I am. We don't say, well, well, everyone does this in these circumstances, but we repent, we renounce, and we fight. Now, as we look at these struggles against pride, we must also see the connection between pride and anxiety. It's a very close connection between our anxious hearts and the pride in our hearts. Our desire and need to control our demand that we would know what will happen in the future, our obsession with the opinions and the approval of others, this stirs unrest in our souls and it leads to never-ending anxiety. Friends, if you have a heart that often worries, that is often anxious, there can be a variety of causes, but often one of those causes, underneath the other causes, is pride. David Pallison says it this way. He says, Most of the noise in our souls is generated by our attempts to control the uncontrollable. We want to be in charge. We want the world, the people in our lives to act the way we want them to act. So we must set ourselves, friend, in the course of fighting pride. If you read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, we see the danger of pride throughout. But we also see that God is particularly drawn to a certain type of person, and he's always drawn to the humble person. We, in fact, see great promises for those who cultivate humility. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-7 through 7 says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Friend, did you see what the text says? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friend, there's one in the world that we don't want to find opposing us. Friends, that is God himself. But when I walk in pride, when I don't fight pride, when I embrace pride, I I pit myself against God. But notice what he says on the other side, he gives grace to the humble. When, friends, when you are cultivating humility, God will always give you more grace for that fight. Seek to struggle against pride. God will give you grace upon grace upon grace for that effort. The text shows us one of the primary ways that we humble ourselves in 1 Peter, and it says this. 
Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So in prayer, we cast our anxieties on him. Friend, if you're struggling with pride, struggling with anxiety, one of the wisest things you can do is cultivate a life of casting your cares on God. Now, often we who are proud think we can fix these things. Just a little bit more of my own effort, a little more of my own energy. So we, rather than casting them on him, we cling to them. And we mull them over, we worry about them, we hold them tight. What we're called to here is to cast them on him. Say, God, I, I don't have a solution for this. I don't know what to do. And so in prayer, I cast this care on you because you care for me. Because you are able and I'm not. Friend, cast your cares on the Lord. Peace, contentment, humility, friends, can be found in life. I wonder if you desire that in your life. If you desire to move away from restlessness, friend, per- pursue peace and humility. That leads us to third. Third, we see the power for peace and humility. The power for peace and humility. In verse 1 and 2, David is talking to the Lord and in some ways to himself. But then notice verse 3, he turns outward and he speaks to the people of God. Look down at verse 3. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now at first glance, this verse might seem somewhat unconnected, unrelated to what has been said before. It's certainly a good thing to hope in the Lord, but what does that have to do with humility and peace? Friends, if we look closer, we see David is pointing to the very power of peace and humility, the very power to fight pride. And what's the power for peace and humility? Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Put your trust in the Lord. Rest in faith in the Lord. If your hope is elsewhere, redirect it to the Lord. Don't hope in yourself. Don't hope in your past success. Don't hope in your education. Don't hope in how much you've accumulated in this life. Don't hope in those things. Hope in the Lord. Don't hope in the opinions of others. Don't hope in the applause that others might give to you. Hope, ground your hope in the Lord today. Hope in the Lord today and have hope in Him for tomorrow as well. And friends, hoping in the Lord requires humility. It involves looking away from self. And hoping in the Lord ultimately is asking for the Lord's help to help us trust in Him. Friends, hoping in the Lord always involves faith. But of course, hoping in anything else requires faith as well. Friends, how wise is it to hope in ourselves? Instead, let us choose to hope in the Lord. Now, the power for humility and peace is not found in our hoping, but in the Lord who we're hoping in. We're hoping in the God who made all things, who holds all things together. We're hoping in our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And when we think about fighting pride and cultivating humility, you may think, well, that's impossible. On the one hand, that's true. Through our own efforts, it is impossible. But friends, because of our Savior and King, Jesus, it is both possible, and he has given us the very resources to pursue it. Jesus shows us the way of humility. 
He calls us to humility, and then most importantly, through his humble sacrifice, he's provided the power, the very resources for this humility. Listen to what Philippians 2 says about Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this is our King Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, two of Jesus' disciples, two brothers, James and John, they ask of Jesus, would you give us the two best seats in your kingdom? Here's what Jesus says in response, Mark 10, 42 to 45. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, Jesus Christ came to show us the way of humility. If we want to explore what does it look like to live a humble life, just read the gospel accounts. Take up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And look to Jesus, a perfect life of humility. But more than that, he's a model for humility, but he's more than that. He gave his life as a ransom to purchase for us transformation, new life in Christ, and the very power by the Spirit of Jesus within us to grow in humility. Friends, the challenge for every one of us is that in our pride, we all had rejected God. And by his grace, he has pursued us. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what, what the Bible tells us is that all humans, all of us, are marked by pride. And the deepest reality of our pride is our rejection of God. Friends, what we want you to know is there is a perfect Savior who came to die astoundingly for prideful people like us. He didn't come to die for good people because, in fact, there are no good people. He came to die for rebels like you and me. So that through his sacrificial death, his humble death, we could know life. The forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, adoption as God's very own children. Friends, Jesus alone, he is perfect. Christians are not perfect. But Jesus is perfect. And we would love for you to know this Jesus. If you're you're new to exploring that or just new to attending church, maybe consider for for this next year, give yourself to a diligent pursuit of who is Jesus. Could it be that he really would be the Savior and King? David Pallison says it this way. He says, come to know Jesus. He's the ladder toppler, the idol breaker, the lie piercer, the pride smasher. He gives life, makes peace, gives joy, and makes you over. Friends, that's what we're inviting you to consider, this Jesus who transforms. Now, this call to humility is a call to every one of us. For those of us who are Christians, this call is for us to pursue a life of humility. 
So let us be a people who fight this battle together, who seek to cultivate humility in community. Now, what are some ways we can do this on a practical level to fight against pride, to cultivate humility? Here's just a few thoughts. One, at the beginning, recognize the danger. Pride is subtle. It's hard to detect and exceedingly hard to detect in our own hearts. As C.S. Lewis said at the outset, it's easy for us to see it in others, and we hate it in others. It offends us in others. We say, they're so prideful, if only they could be more like me, because I'm so humble. Friend, be careful of that. It's hard to see in ourselves. Second, come to grips with the challenge of this fight. Friends, pride is present in all of our lives, probably more pervasive than we realize. So the question isn't if there's pride in my heart, it's where. It's not if there's pride this week, but where is there pride in my heart this week? And friends, this will be a lifelong battle. As David writes this psalm, he has made great progress, but he in his life, if we study it, had devastating failures grounded in pride. So I wish I could tell you today, if you fight this battle for humility in your life in 2017, you'll never have to fight it again. I can't tell you that. Instead, it's a daily battle we will face. Humility today is not a guarantee of humility tomorrow. But it's also wise to engage in some key daily or regular practices. So for instance, reflect regularly on your own sinfulness, of your own need of the grace of God. Be very familiar with your own sin. And then simultaneously, reflect on the cross of Christ. When we downplay our own sinfulness, we downplay the cross. But when we're aware of the depth of our own sinfulness, we see the beauty, the heights of the grace of God in the cross of Christ. Friends, think often and deeply on this good news of Jesus Christ that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Milton Vincent says it this way, Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Listen to this. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. Conversely, humility grows lushly in the atmosphere of the gospel. Friends, think often the work of Christ on your behalf. Another helpful regular practice is to look for opportunities regularly to express gratitude to God and to others. Be a person who cultivates thankfulness. The prideful heart is the ungrateful heart. Cultivate thankfulness. Engage regularly in close examination and confession of sin in the areas of pride. Ask yourself, Where am I envying others? Am I teachable by others? Where am I jealous of the progress, the success of others? And friends, if you dare and you should, invite others, friends, into the struggle with you. You'd have to be a pretty trusted friend. You'd have to be pretty... Daring to say to a friend, I need you to help me fight pride. Because I know that it's there. 
I know where some of it is, but I don't even see all of it. So would you, as a brother or sister, would you walk with me, help me in this fight, help me to see it. Another practice, friends, is to pray for humility. Pray daily, God, would you grow me in humility? Would you cultivate that within me? And then, friend, begin walking in humility. This is not faking humility. I think, think that's really what we'd all like to do is actually, we don't really want, want to be humble. We just want to be thought of as humble. We'd love it if everybody thought we were humble, but we didn't actually have to be it. So I'm not saying fake it, but I am saying take the steps to practice it, even if your heart isn't always completely there. Meaning, as Jesus said, give up the best seat to someone else. You, know, you, you take the first seat. I'll take the last seat. Listen to others in conversation without feeling the need to share your story. You know how it is when your friend says, oh yeah, I finally got to go to an island. I went to this little obscure island and you say, oh, that was really great. Let me tell you about when I went to Hawaii and it was awesome. Like, wow, your, your story's always better than theirs. Like I just went on my first airplane flight, they might say, and I, and I flew from, from Boston to Albany. Like, oh, that's great. I once flew around the world. That's how we often do it. Friend, don't connect everything to yourself. Simply listen to others. Care for them. Celebrate their stories. And friends, one of the ways we cultivate humility is seek to serve. Friends, if this is your church, look for ways to serve. And especially look for ways to serve where you won't be noticed, where you won't be seen. What would that look like? I mean, at our church, we, we, we don't have this parking lot that I assume somebody else probably comes and like plows this lot. So when snow comes in the next few weeks, it'll be, you know, who's willing to come shovel the snow at our church facility? It's a pretty thankless job, but it's tremendously important. And the question is, who's willing to take up the shovel? Who's willing to serve in the children's ministry that others might worship? There's countless ways of serving the life of this church. And we're tempted to say, well, I'm willing to serve in the ways I want to serve. Rather than, well, what are the needs? How can I serve? And as we walk in service, we, we grow in humility. We fight pride in those ways. For instance, it's a high calling to fight pride, to cultivate humility. But it is a worthwhile pursuit. I don't know whether you like to set goals for a new year or not, but if you were to think through that for 2017, what if one of the things you'd like to give attention to would be, how do I fight pride, grow in humility? What if a year from now there was more humility in my life? Less pride, less anxious. Not, not if it'd be completely absent. It won't be. It'll still be there. But less of it. Less anxiety, less worry, less pride. By God's grace, friends, let us grow. Let us pursue. Let us cultivate humility. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for the hope that is ours, not because we're so good, not because we're so strong, but because of what Jesus has done. He, the picture of perfect humility, who humbled himself to, to take on flesh and walk among us, to show us the way of humility, 
but then ultimately humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he might rescue prideful people like us. So Lord, would you not, not, not crush us under this, but, but give us hope that we could be changed by your grace. I pray for Christians in the room that they would be strengthened this year to fight, to fight pride, to cultivate humility. And I pray for some who are here who don't know Christ, that today, this week, this month, they would explore, could it be that there is a king who humbled himself to rescue sinners and make them sons and daughters of God? Lord, might you rescue them by your grace this year. In Jesus' name, amen.